0: This is a clip of some soldiers in Ukraine. The pictures have echoes of the First World War. The troops are standing in a grim, narrow, muddy trench dug into the earth. Behind the camera a soldier shows off the position. It's classic old-school warfare. Sitting at the top of the trench though is something incongruous, a clean, white
2: satellite dish.
0: It's about the size of a large pizza. It's a Starlink connection terminal. That satellite dish, made by the company SpaceX, links the soldiers in that trench in Ukraine with more than 3,000 satellites orbiting Earth, just a few hundred kilometers above its surface. Together, the system provides high-speed internet connections for the troops hiding in the dugout. (laughs) Elsewhere, in Mykolaiv Oblast in southern Ukraine, the communications chief of the Ukrainian Army's 59th Brigade explains that the Starlink connections are his army's main means of transmitting information. The Starlink system is easy to use, says the commander. And he makes a point of thanking the man who's provided the terminals, Elon Musk. Starlink has transformed satellite communications. Fast, resilient, and portable internet access is available throughout Ukraine, despite power blackouts in a country whose hardwired communications infrastructure has been attacked and severely damaged. Starlink lets soldiers send intelligence, orders and even to direct drones. It was invented for use by civilians, but it's in war that the technology has demonstrated how vital and revolutionary it can be. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. This week, how Starlink satellites have saved Ukraine and could change the way in which all wars are fought in the future. We'll explain how the thousands of satellites bundled together to create reliable, resilient connections for both Ukraine's civilians and its army. We'll also explore how satellite constellations in low Earth orbit seem to be at the heart of a new space race, pitting countries and companies against each other to build their own communication systems. Guiding me through today's show are two of The Economist's best minds on this topic, our technology and society editor, Tim Cross, and Shashank Joshi is our defence editor. Thank you both so much for joining me.
2: Thanks, Alok. Uh, Thanks, Alok.
0: Now, Tim, let's start with you. Listeners will have heard of Starlink. You and I have talked about it on this podcast before. But what is it about Starlink that makes it special? What is its origins? Where did it come from?
3: Starlink is a product of SpaceX, Elon Musk's rocketry startup that uh, flies those Falcon 9 rockets that you can see in in the footage where their first stages fly back to Earth and land upright on their tails like rockets do in in children's cartoons. And the basic idea is it's a sort of classic Elon Musk play in a way, which is to take a technology that already exists but isn't very good uh, and see if they can make it better. So, Satellite internet's been around for a long time. The problem is it tends to be, you know, quite poor when you compare it to sort of fixed line broadband. So it's an option of last resort. You know, the, the speeds are slow, the data capacity is limited, there's high sort of latency, you know, there's there's a sort of noticeable delay between clicking on something and something happening. And Starlink really wants to try and sort of flip that round. So it was originally aimed at people who lived in parts of the world where they couldn't get internet in sort of any other way. And the idea was to offer them something much better than what the existing options
0: were. So how does the technology actually work? There are thousands of satellites, there are stations on the ground that people have. How does it all come together?
3: Well, yeah, so from the consumer's point of view, you buy an aerial, you stick it on your roof or somewhere with a a sort of view of the sky, you plug it into a router and you're off and away. But you put your finger on the sort of big difference between Starlink and other constellations, which is in the past, the way things have tended to work is because rocket launches are expensive, you can't afford to fly too many satellites. So you get one big, super complicated, high capacity satellite and put it in a very high orbit. And that means it can see a large part of the Earth's surface at once. So, you know, in that sense, it's efficient. The problem of course is that means if you've got lots of customers all going through one satellite, they all have to share its capacity, which means each customer gets only a small sliver. And because you're flying so high, it takes a sort of appreciable, like detectable amount of time for lights to get from the ground to the satellite, back to the ground again, and then do the whole uh, journey backwards. And the, the key idea of Starlink is to flip that on its head. So instead of having a small number of, of very big satellites, you have huge numbers of very small ones that fly hundreds of times lower, a few hundred kilometres Above the surface. Each satellite can only see a small part of the Earth's surface. So that means, in order to cover the whole world, you need absolutely loads of them. So at the moment, there are about 3,500 Starlink satellites in orbit. It's only been going since 2019, but it already accounts for half the active satellites that exist. uh, And SpaceX's plans eventually are to launch 20 or maybe even 40,000.
0: Now, the benefits of a system like this are clear in some respects, but Shashank, over the past 10 months, Starlink has become probably most well known for its role in Ukraine. Can you just um, tell us how that began?
2: Well, appropriately enough, given Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter, it began with a tweet, and it was a tweet by Mikhailo Fedorov, who is Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation. This was, I think, two days after the invasion began. And he wrote to Elon Musk saying, you're trying to colonise Mars. Russia is trying to occupy Ukraine. Meanwhile, please give us Starlink. Allow us to communicate, help fix our problems. And of course, two days earlier, Russia had not only invaded, it had also conducted a major cyber attack on Ukraine's main satellite provider. I think, as Alok, you and I discussed on this show uh, not very long ago. Within days of that tweet, There were lorries full of Starlink dishes, the ones that Tim's just described, arriving in Ukraine, and by May around 150,000 people were using it daily. I think now a huge proportion of Starlink's overall traffic globally comes from Ukraine. It's basically become an integral part of the country's communication, both civilian in terms of things like government services, broadcasting, Zelensky's nightly messages, but also military. It's become an absolutely critical part of the war effort.
0: Okay, well, let's unpack that then, Shashank. Can you give me some examples of how the commanders and soldiers on the ground in Ukraine are actually using this type of internet connection to actually wage war?
2: They're using it for all sorts of things on the battlefield. One of the things I thought was most striking, having spoken to someone who recently observed them using this on the battlefield, was an app. And it's an app whereby a Ukrainian soldier who spots, let's say, a Russian tank or an air defence system can upload... Uh, image of that uh, using the connectivity provided by Starlink, that is then sent to say a sort of, you might consider it a group chat of artillery battery commanders who are again also relying on Starlink and the connectivity provided by it. And they can choose amongst themselves, you know, who hits this target. They can deconflict which gun strikes what and when. If you like, it's a sort of uber for howitzers. So that level of intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, to use the term that military types use, is basically turbocharged by having this kind of ubiquitous satellite connectivity. I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the dishes are so small, you can basically strap them onto anything, including things that fly. So for example, a drone or a a naval drone that goes on the water and then use that satellite connection to pilot the drone, which is by no means easy when you're beyond visual range or you're beyond the range of radios, or even to send back live video footage of that drone driving into its target. So in other words, this has really been a, a revolution. In battlefield communication, battlefield intelligence and surveillance, and and made it much much more accessible than in the past.
0: Tim, the uh, capabilities that Shashank outlined there is quite incredible. Um, but what is it about Starlink that allows that to happen? I mean, is this is it completely advanced technology, or is it just better use of that technology and lower power and that kind of thing?
3: Well, I suppose the biggest benefit it gives you is just the sheer quantity of bandwidth that you get. SpaceX don't publish exact figures, but if you look at some of the speed tests that are done, you know Starlink consumer connections offer you perhaps a hundred megabits a second of bandwidth and as Shashank just said, these are small aerials, so they're about the size of an extra large pizza or something like that. They're very portable. you can set them up on rooftops and take them down in in a couple of minutes. you can strap them to other things so basically you have these kind of frontline soldiers who are swimming in bandwidth in a way that they haven't been in the past, you sort of got ubiquitous internet right up to the front lines of the battlefield. So it just lubricates, as I understand it, all the processes that before we had something like this Would have taken a bit longer. So it makes the whole system more agile and able to react a bit more quickly. And the dishes themselves as well, because they're portable, because they're small, they don't need much infrastructure, they're sort of rugged. So we've talked about the military applications, but also that's useful for civilians in a war zone. So for instance, when Herson was reconquered by Ukraine, I think it was Starlink that helped them get local mobile phone connections working again quite quickly because it could provide a link out to the wider internet. SpaceX have changed the software so that you can power these things off the cigarette lighters in cars, for instance, or you can kind of jury rig almost any kind of power supply into them. So if you're living in a Ukrainian city and the Russians are sending missiles at your power plants, that makes Starlink quite resilient compared to something like a sort of conventional mobile phone network.
0: But Tim, fundamentally, Starlink is still civilian technology, right? Military technology is famously expensive and hard-wearing. How would it compare? I mean, can it be interfered with? Can it be broken in some way, in a way that perhaps military operators wouldn't normally use this sort of technology otherwise?
3: Well, I mean, this is the question, isn't it? You know, you might argue that military is as military does. But, um, but yes, yeah, Starlink was designed primarily as a civilian technology. I, I wouldn't be surprised if SpaceX had always had you know something like this in mind but it's proven surprisingly resilient shashank mentioned the attack on another satellite provider just before the war in ukraine and spacex have said that they've seen cyber attacks as well but so far they've been able to sort of dodge them all they can update the software on the dishes to react to these things quite quickly because the dishes are small and portable it's quite hard to destroy them and then of course people will say well you know can't you target the satellites themselves and i think the the, the trick here is that there are so many of these things that that's much harder or or perhaps even impossible.
2: I think Tim's exactly right. So America and the Soviet Union have tested missiles that can blow up satellites since the 1950s. That's not new. And more recently, so have China and India, uh, among others. But those missiles were really aimed at an era where you had a small number of exquisitely expensive, dedicated, vital satellites. And if you took one or two out, you made a profound difference to your enemy's capability. When you have 3,000 satellites, you simply cannot shoot them all out the sky. It's just not possible. There aren't enough anti-satellite missiles to do that. And even if you could destroy lots, the point is we've already heard Tim describe SpaceX's nifty rockets. You could replenish those constellations much more cheaply and quickly than you could in the past. So what we're basically seeing is that there is resilience through sheer numbers. Traditional anti-satellite weapons are far, far less helpful against a constellation of this size.
0: Okay. well, we'll hear more about those old satellites in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder that you can read more about the uses of technology in Ukraine in The Economist. Tim Shashank, is there anything that you've been reading that uh, you particularly liked, uh, Tim?
3: There was a very nice piece in the science section about this idea that, you know, science isn't quite advancing as fast as it used to. So it's a research paper that finds that research papers uh, and patents and things like that are becoming less and less impactful over time. And there has been a sort of sharp drop since the 1940s and goes into some questions as to why that might be. It's very, very interesting. And I think anyone who thinks about technology in the long run should give it a look.
2: Shashak, what about you? Give us something optimistic. Well, my colleague, who's surely one of the best foreign reporters in Ukraine today, has written a completely brilliant piece for our Europe section on female snipers. So a completely low tech legacy technology, but a very, very effective one. And he's written a really brilliantly reported piece on why women can make better snipers than men. So I urge you to read that. I think it would also be remiss of me, Alok, not to mention the completely brilliant piece on sex toys in the Middle East. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, you have no t- you, you, you'll just have to subscribe and read it.
0: I don't, I don't- how you made that turn so elegantly, um, but thank you, Shashank <laughs> and and Tim. To read all of that, you'll have to become a subscriber. There's a special introductory rate for our listeners. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. Using satellites as a means of communication during war has a long, but mixed history.
1: The first step
3: toward the conquest of space. With rockets already soaring 250 miles above the ground, the United States turns to the artificial satellite.
0: The first satellite that launched into space, Sputnik 1, came from the Soviet Union in 1957. It had a radio transmitter on board. In 1962, America launched the first satellite that could relay television, telephone, and what were then high-speed data signals. It was called Telstar 1.
3: Even as our moon, which follows the Earth in its journey around the sun, the man-made satellites the size of basketballs
2: will soon circle the Earth.
0: The science worked, and Americans soon began to use communication satellites for military purposes.
1: In the mid-1960s, the U.S. started launching the initial defense communication satellite program.
0: Aaron Bateman is a professor of history and international affairs at George Washington University.
1: So when the U.S. is deploying forces to Southeast Asia, one of the things that's recognized is that the U.S. or U.S. forces don't really have an effective way of communicating in near real time with rear echelon, higher headquarters elements, and especially more senior policymakers back in Washington, at the Pentagon. Um, So Vietnam's the first time when a satellite communications link is actually placed in country to allow those near-real-time communications.
4: Aid to Vietnam by the US has added up to $3 billion and and 14,000 men. Men who are called
1: advisors, but who are in the thick of the battles against the Viet Cong rebels. US helicopters are the workhorses of any battle action. In
0: 1964, at the midpoint of the Vietnam War, Americans installed a satellite dish in Saigon it transformed the American Army's ability to communicate with Washington. But the satellites needed for the communication system were costly to launch into orbit, and the receiver dishes needed on the ground were expensive to make and move around. So those dishes had to stay in one place.
1: And this equipment is is fairly cumbersome. So in Vietnam, for example, um, you have these very large satellite dishes that are sitting outside of a higher headquarters establishment in Saigon, but you're not going to have satellite communications, at least at that point in time, used by mobile users out in the field.
0: The first dish in Saigon could send a telephone connection and a teletype circuit, which could send or receive typed messages, to Hawaii. It was a good start, but far from the direct connection with ground troops that the military had originally hoped for. It took two more decades for satellite communications to make it to the front line of a battle.
1: When Britain deployed a naval task force in April and June of 1982 to retake the Falkland Islands from Argentina, that's really, in many ways, when not only the British but even um, US government officials really recognize how important satellite communications were for tactical users because you have British ships deployed out at sea that are using satellite communications, not only to relay messages back to Whitehall, but also to be able to share things like time-sensitive intelligence.
0: By the first Gulf War in 1991, America's army had 128 satellite terminals scattered throughout its forces, connecting them to 60 satellites in Earth orbit. In combination with GPS, Satellite communications transformed the Gulf War. They enabled bombs to be guided with precision. They allowed soldiers to navigate accurately across vast deserts. But satellite comms were still limited. Traditional geosynchronous satellites, in other words, those that orbit over a fixed spot on the Earth's surface, sit at around 36,000 kilometers from our planet. Being so far away means they can't really deliver data at much more than 10 megabytes per second, and that's nowhere near what you might need to command a war. And with satellites that far away, it takes longer for data to pass up and down. This leads to latency or delays in communications. That's no good for directing a drone, for example. Another problem with the signals used until now is that they can be jammed by bad actors cutting off communications in time. The satellites themselves are also vulnerable to direct attack.
2: Because of the enormous importance of these high-altitude military satellites, here at the Pentagon, a great deal of time and effort is being spent working out how to protect America's high-altitude satellites and how to attack Russian ones.
1: We'll have to take out uh, the geosynchronous satellites, which are command-control communications. Uh, Would certainly be a a very valuable or very uh, high-priority target.
0: That's U.S. Major General John Storey speaking in 1983.
1: Uh, Those satellites that are providing information to the commanders on the ground that that are destroying our resources, certainly if we could take out that capability uh, from the Soviet uh, commanders, we would do that.
0: Both America and the Soviet Union tested satellite-destroying weapons during the Cold War. In November 2021, Russia tested such a weapon once again, blowing up an old Soviet satellite. This
2: morning, outrage from U.S. officials after Russia carried out a missile test early Monday, firing an anti-satellite missile into space, obliterating one of its own satellites and creating a vast debris field that's now orbiting Earth. Starlink,
0: however, is a lot less vulnerable to these kinds of direct attacks. To make a dent in its network would need a lot of satellite-destroying missiles. That resilience, added to the very fast internet connections, is proving so useful in Ukraine that other countries and companies around the world are paying much more attention. Will SpaceX's success in Ukraine usher in a new space race. That's coming up.
2: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. with Good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation,
0: Today on Babbage, we're talking about how a single American company, SpaceX, has changed the course of the war in Ukraine and may shape how wars are fought in the future. I'm joined again by The economists Tim Cross and Shashank Joshi. Shashank, let's start with you. Um, So far, we've discussed on the show how Starlink has played an important role in Ukraine. But how else could these kinds of satellite constellations change warfare going forward?
2: Well, as Aaron Bateman explained, the use of satellites in war isn't new. What's different is just the sheer amount of it. You know, you are swimming in connectivity for the reasons that Tim has discussed earlier. And so if you look at older wars, even Iraq and Afghanistan more recently, Western armies had a lot of satellite communication, but it was mostly for headquarters. You know, in other words, senior officers doing senior officer things. And if you got down to the sort of level of the average grunt on the front lines right at the edge of the battlefield, it was much more limited. They did not have the kind of 100 megabits per second bandwidth that Tim was talking about earlier, you know. So, yes, you had huge amounts of full motion video being taken by drones in Baghdad or wherever else, but it wasn't necessarily accessible right at the bottom of the battlefield. What Starlink has done in Ukraine, and I think in a way this is the vision for other armies, is bring that level of connectivity to the lowest unit, right down to the bottom. But of course, there's no reason why a constellation like Starlink should be restricted to just communications. You can put other things on these so-called mega constellations in low Earth orbit. So, for example, that could be navigation and position systems like GPS, or it could be Earth observation, things like imagery, radar satellites, all kinds of things. You know, the Pentagon and other military organisations are thinking very hard about the other kinds of stuff they might be able to do with this kind of constellation.
0: Tim, so far we've talked about Starlink. I mean, really, Starlink has dominated um, the satellite communications of this new type. It's obviously been developed by SpaceX. Um, why are they so dominant? And is it because of first-mover advantage? Is it because of monopolies of scale of the number of satellites they've already got up in orbit already? Or do they have some sort of secret source that we just don't know about? I
3: think it's all of the above, actually. I think SpaceX's real goal, has, or ultimate goal, has always been very aware since very early on that to do that you need to drastically cut the cost of getting into orbit, so they have what is essentially the world's best rocket at the moment, which is the partially reusable Falcon nine and we mentioned at the start you know these are the rockets where the first stages come back from from high up in the atmosphere and land on their fins so they can be reused again. And that's not just sort of technological wizardry. It drastically cuts the cost of launching a rocket. And if you're going to try and put thousands and thousands of satellites into orbit, you need your launch cost to be as low as possible. Now, this is where they are at the moment with Falcon 9, and they can launch about 50 satellites at once with each sort of Falcon 9. But SpaceX, you know, they're trying to go even further. So there's another rocket they're developing, which it's now late, but it's even bigger called Starship, that would allow them to launch maybe 400 Starlink satellites at once. And despite being much bigger, the goal is for it to cost even less than the Falcon 9 does.
0: Well, Babbage listeners will know all about Starship, given that you took us through it all last year. But let's talk about those competitors for a moment. Who else wants to launch these enormous constellations and how are they doing?
3: Well, so some of them are private companies and I guess maybe the best known one is Kuiper which is bankrolled by another billionaire who's also a space cadet. That's Jeff Bezos, the former boss of Amazon. And he's got his own rocket company, Blue Origin, but at the moment Kuiper only exists on paper. I think they're going to launch some test satellites soon but haven't yet and Blue Origin itself has sort of yet to get to orbit. Another competitor is a company called OneWeb. Now, they've almost finished their constellation, which is quite a bit smaller than SpaceX's, sort of 650-odd satellites, but a broadly similar idea. The interesting thing there is they actually went bankrupt during the COVID-19 pandemic, and they were rescued by a consortium, part of which was an Indian firm called Bharti Global, and the other part of which was the British government. And when the British government rescued them, they got a sort of special share that gives them all kinds of special control over the company. And I think... What that shows you and what the Ukraine war has kind of accelerated is that lots of countries want a capability like this as well. So you've seen, for instance, China has now said, well, we want something similar. We want 13,000 satellites in low earth orbit. Russia has said it wants its own big constellation of you 270 know, odd. And most recently, in fact, we've even seen Taiwan, which is constantly worried about an invasion from China, saying they'd like to get in on the action as well.
0: Taiwan's ambition to build a satellite internet system has recently made headlines. The government there has already started preliminary talks with domestic and international investors.
4: The war has changed everything, so it has speed up the cooperation between different projects and also have put our technology roadmap ahead. Herming Chu is the Deputy
0: Minister for Digital Affairs in Taiwan. He told me that if the island came under attack, keeping communications open would be vital.
4: Like uh, the Ukraine case, the, the government or president should have a capability to broadcast a real-time message to the citizens. And uh, another problem for Taiwan is that we rely on the submarine cables. So if we have an emergency like war or earthquake, it's a very high possibility that uh, the submarine cable will be destroyed. In this case, then the satellites can help us to communicate with international society, also communication with other allies. How much of a priority
0: is all of this for Taiwan? How urgent is it?
4: Well, many international news say that uh, Taiwan is the second most dangerous place in the world. So we think uh, that uh the priority of this project is very high. So what we try to do is we try to build up these receivers and the satellite system in two years. Do
0: you worry that China might try to derail the development of this new system?
4: Yeah, we are not worried about it, but we are sure that China will try to deter any work we try to do. So that's one of the reasons we not only we rely on commercial service like SpaceX. We also have a Taiwan Space Agency that we try to develop our own version of a low Earth orbit satellite. And uh, one of the reasons is because we also need to keep some of the core technology in our hand. For example, lots of commercial companies, they also have business with China, or they they might have interference from international parties.
0: So there are two prongs to your plan. One is the National Space Agency in Taiwan, and also then using commercial enterprise to buy in satellite internet. But of course, for national security concerns, you want to have that technology controlled by Taiwan itself in the case of problems with the commercial enterprise.
4: Yeah, let's correct.
0: How do you plan to launch your satellites? I wonder if you've got the launch capacity or, or planning to build the launch capacity that can do it.
4: That's a great question. So basically, Taiwan's space office, we launch our satellites using other services. So the last satellite we launched is work together with SpaceX. And also before we been launched with the United States. And I think we are trying to build up our launch capacity. So recently, uh, there are several projects that uh, we try to build up our own rocket. But uh, I think it won't be available very soon. So probably that will be more than two years project or five years project. But before that, we will build up the satellite network to taking care of the communication system first.
0: People have said that the satellite internet and developing it will be the sort of focal point of the next space race around the world. Different countries are all trying to build their own
4: constellations. Different companies are trying to do that. Do you agree? Yeah, I. I do agree with your comment, and uh, I I also agree that it's going to be an overcrowded field. But in our perspective, to join this field is not only a business or financial decision. The principle of resilience applies not only communications, but also on key technologies.
0: Herming, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm back with Tim Cross and Shashank Joshi. Tim, why is it that each of these countries want their own constellation? I mean, if a single constellation of tens of thousands of satellites is up there, couldn't all countries use the same one?
3: Well, they could in theory. And you know, obviously, that would be much, much cheaper than launching several direct competitors. But I think people are thinking of it in the same category as things like, for instance, GPS. So GPS started life as an American military system. It turned out to have all kinds of uses for civilians as well. But it's become so useful and so important to modern war fighting and to economies and so on that countries have said, well, we're a bit uncomfortable about relying essentially on the generosity of the Americans to ensure that this thing carries on existing. So that's why we have Galileo, which is the European's version of GPS, or GLONASS, which is the Russian's version. Um, seems to me that these sort of giant constellations for communications or whatever else are now seen in the kind of same category. And people think, we need to have access to this, and we need to have access to one of our own, not one that's run by another country.
0: So sovereign control, essentially.
3: Sovereign control, exactly. And you know, perhaps even made sharper by the fact that at the moment... SpaceX, it is an American company, but it's controlled day to day, not by the American government like GPS, but by one single, very wealthy individual who presumably has his own agenda.
0: Yeah, it's time to mention the, the billionaire in the room, Elon Musk. He, he seems to have a huge amount of power in this war and potentially future ones as well.
3: Yeah, I think that's true to an extent. I mean, the big example of this was back in October, I think it was, when Musk polled his Twitter followers on whether Russia should be allowed to hang on to Crimea, which of course it seized in 2014. And understandably this caused a big row with the Ukrainian government.
0: So foreign policy by tweet.
3: Exactly, and to some extent he controls how Ukraine can use this system and where they can use it. So I think that's an issue and it's one that arises from the slightly unusual kind of voluntary way in which all this was arranged. You know, a, A lot of the Western aid to Ukraine has gone through governments, all of the missiles and artillery pieces and bulletproof vests and so on are funneled through governments, but the Starlink deal, as Shashank mentioned at the start of this, essentially was done by tweet, sort of off the cuff. And that's left Mr. Musk with an awful lot of power. Whether this is a problem in the long run, I don't know. I mean, Some people argue that his other business interests might sort of get in the way. So we've just heard that Taiwan is keen to have a system like this. I wonder if something that factors into that calculation is that China is a very big market, both for consumers and production, of Mr. Musk's electric cars, of Tesla. And Musk himself, there's no doubt he's sort of very clever and an extremely accomplished engineer. He's spread very thin and sometimes seems to behave rather erratically. So it wouldn't surprise me if there were several people in the Ukrainian government who, you know, lie awake at night worrying
2: about these sort of things.
0: And Shashank, does the idea of Elon Musk being in charge of all of this concern you at all, just one person having so much control?
2: Alok, if you want to see an example of a narcissistic billionaire making decisions of war and peace using this technology, look at the example of Crimea, a part of Ukraine which Russia annexed illegally in 2014 and Ukraine wants it back. In September, Ukrainian officials told us that Elon Musk had rejected a Ukrainian request to use Starlink there. And what we've been told since is that he has Also, resisted the use of this in other parts of Russian occupied territory. So, for example, Ukraine can't fly drones into those areas to conduct attacks because the receivers just wouldn't be able to get a signal from the satellites. And I think this shows you a billionaire who owns this constellation is able to influence these minute tactical decisions just by virtue of owning and controlling this constellation. I think that's deeply worrying given what we know about Elon Musk's capricious mercurial style.
0: Normally, if you have military equipment, missiles, tanks, whatever else, it goes through governments. I mean, the defense companies don't directly deal with foreign governments like this. Why is it that Starlink, which has become so integral to this war, is still a sort of a private industry donation? Why is it not gone through the Defense Department of America?
2: I think it's an illustration of the way in which so much advanced technology from satellite technology to artificial intelligence is now in the private sector first, unlike during the Cold War, when a great deal of it, for example, GPS, as Tim mentioned earlier, was initially military technology developed by America's formidable military industrial complex that then became civilian. This is the other way around. Starlink exemplifies that shift. I think it's also increasingly intertwined and inseparable. So, for example, we see SpaceX launching a Starshield division of Starlink, which is explicitly marketed for military and intelligent customers, not just a kind of side hustle or a fortuitous accident like it was for Ukraine. But I think this does present a number of issues. And one of them is, for example, under the law of armed conflict or international humanitarian law, military objects are, under some circumstances, legitimate targets to be struck. So if you you're the Russians looking at this, and Starlink is playing an absolutely pivotal role in helping Ukraine fire artillery shells at your tanks. You might well view this, and not without some justification, I should say, as a completely legitimate target to hit. It doesn't mean you can do much about it, but I think it does show you that civilian object objects on which you know people sitting in rural Idaho or in Somerset in Britain or, or in parts of Africa may be relying for their broadband access may. They become really players in an ongoing armed conflict involving one of the superpowers of the world.
0: Tim, just to wind things up, in terms of the technology itself, Starlink, how transformative is it going to be, this and the other satellite constellations that, that are coming?
3: Well, I think if they all, or even if a fraction of them actually go up there and, and get developed and are built, I think it will be potentially quite transformative because you could essentially have relatively cheap, relatively fast internet connectivity almost everywhere. I think, It's one of those things that there are probably hundreds or sort of thousands of uses for. I think, though, this question about whether they actually get built is the key one because SpaceX is riding high at the moment. But the consumer side of the business, I would say, is still quite unproven. And I mean, we have seen people try something a little bit like this before in the 1990s, not quite on this sort of scale. And the economics didn't work then. The problem really is not so much the satellites and the rockets, but the dishes which the consumers have to use to track them. These things are sort of quite high tech. And at the moment, SpaceX sells them for $600 each. But the last we heard from the company, it costs them about $1,500 to manufacture. So they're subsidizing these things quite heavily. And really the entire business, or at least the consumer side of the business, will stand or fall on their ability to kind of drive those costs down. And it's not yet clear whether they are able to do so. And I think this is the interesting context in which to see the Starshield division that Shashank mentioned. We only found out about the existence of Starshield relatively recently, but we do know that America's army was experimenting with Starlink even before the Ukraine war happened. It wouldn't necessarily surprise me that having had such an impressive kind of debut as a military system, SpaceX is now thinking this is a potentially huge revenue stream for it in the future, and that Starshield is going to quite quickly become quite important to the business.
0: Well, maybe Starshield was the the plan all along, and it's just had a very good example of how it could operate. I mean, Shashank, is there any going back from the ubiquity of satellite communications for military commanders?
2: No, armies develop platforms and kit and planes that collect more data, that send more data, that rely on more data. And, they become accustomed to having all of that at their disposal, to seeing where the enemy is, to being able to send tactical information to others, to being able to communicate in voice and video with higher headquarters. And so, in a way, they get hooked on this and they need the means to fuel their addiction. And they struggled to do that. In the war on terror, uh, they could do it using fibre optic cables, using fixed sights, but the front lines weren't moving very much. Ukraine is a new type of war, or, or indeed a, a reminder of an old type, where the front lines move quickly, where armies can advance fast. In that sense, many Western commanders think it is a portent of what they may face one day. And therefore, Ukraine's use of Starlink is, for them, a powerful example and a very important sign of things to come.
0: Okay, Shashank, Tim, thank you both very much for joining me.
2: Thanks, Alok. Thanks, Alok.
0: Our thanks also to Aaron Bateman and Herming Chur. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can read Tim and Shashank's briefing on how Starlink is changing warfare in the current edition of The Economist. There's a link to that piece in the show notes. And go to economist.com slash podcast offer if you haven't yet subscribed. Babbage this week was produced by Stevie Hertz and Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...